Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Johnson, and today we're taking a long overdue look at the health and well-being of refugee communities in our state. You may not know this, but Arizona is widely known as a welcoming state for refugees from around the world. These are individuals and families who have fled their home countries due to persecution or fear of persecution on account of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. In the last six months, between October of 21 and March of 22, Arizona has helped over 2,600 people to resettle, the majority of whom are fleeing Afghanistan. And this brings us to today's panel discussion with a local leader from Lutheran Social Services, a refugee resettlement in Arizona, and two local representatives of We Are All America, one of whom is a former refugee from Afghanistan and the other a former refugee from Bosnia-Herzegovina. We hope you enjoy. We are so excited today to have an esteemed panel of guests. We have on the line with us Neda Sumik, who is the National Field Manager with We Are All America. Neda, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, Marcus. Thanks so much for being here. Also from We Are All America is their housing and welcoming navigator, Wise Ramsey. Wise, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me here. And last but not least, from Lutheran Social Services, she's the Intensive Case Manager Supervisor, Janet Kersaba. Janet, welcome. Good morning, and thank you for having us. We wanted to start off just with general introductions for those of our audience who haven't met any of you. Give us a little bit of background about yourselves. What is your organization all about, and what is your specific role within your organization? Neda, I'll start with you. Thanks, Marcus. So I'm actually originally from Bosnia-Herzegovina, which is Eastern Europe. I'm a former refugee that was resettled here in Phoenix, Arizona. In my line of work, I'm the National Field Manager for Real America, and we are actually a national campaign based in over 20 plus states. We've really been leading one of the largest national grassroots organizing efforts for refugees and asylees to build public support for those individuals who are fleeing persecution and violence and really focus at the local level what we can do as far as welcoming inclusion and, and local policies that can provide support and access for for these individuals. And Wise, how about yourself? I know you're newly with We Are All America. Yes, I'm recently started work with We Are All America. My name is Wise Ramsey. I am a former refugee from Afghanistan. I have been in Arizona since 2007. I work as a welcoming and housing navigator. My position is to help and support and educate Afghan newcomers around the housing and the, uh, connecting them to key services and key, key resources. That's great. That's an, a critically important role that anybody who finds themselves in this country, one of the first things you need to do is get connected into a community and ideally have a safe roof over your head. So critical role to play. Janet, tell us a little bit about yourself and the organization that you work with and your role within Lutheran Social Services. I am originally from New York City, second generation Polish American. I work for Lutheran Social Services of the Southwest the Resettlement Division. So we are one of four resettlement agencies in Phoenix, and we welcome Many, many refugees. I've been there for seven years, and I direct and supervise 
the Intensive Case Management Program. We are a team of four. We have one specialist who specializes in our refugees. We have another specialist who is dealing only with Afghan arrivals. And we have a community outreach person. Our program is a federally funded program and offers 12 months of extended intensive case management. Most of our clients arrive, they're fine, they get initial case management from regular case managers, but then there are always extraordinary situations where somebody, a family, is going to need more intensive case management. That's been especially true with the APA arrivals. And it's client-centered, trauma-informed, and we're busy and we like it. I want to ground us first in the experience of refugees coming into the United States. Nada, you mentioned that you are a former refugee, YSU as well. Can you give our audience just a sense on what is it like for someone from another country who's fleeing that country to come here and seek refuge in the United States? Let us know anything about your experiences that you want to mention, just to kind of give us a better sense, to personalize this a little bit, as opposed to having some kind of abstract conversation. So for me, having lived as a former refugee and gone through that journey and lived through that experience, it's a completely different perspective of the world that you have once you've you've gone through that and you see all of the disparities that refugees face. And not just the disparities that I've seen so many of my friends and colleagues, but also their resilience. And I, and I think that's one thing that really I, I always love is seeing the resilience in refugees because before you come here, you know, there's so many things that happen to you. You are forced to leave your home like my family was simply because of our religion. We were persecuted because of that. And most people do not want to leave their homes. It's unfortunately the circumstances that force you. And sometimes you leave without any belongings, without anything in hand, just the clothes on you and and you have to leave and you go through a a very difficult journey and everyone's looks different. And then after many tries for many refugees, they are usually live in in a second country of asylum prior to arriving to a third country like the U.S., which only less than 1% really end up in a country like the U.S., a third country, then you start to this integration and resettlement process when you arrive and and have to go to finding uh, and learning a whole new way of life and navigating through it and a whole new system. So it has a lot of challenges and barriers, but like I said, refugees are one of the most resilient communities that I know, and I'm, I'm so happy to work with. And Weiss, I'll turn it over to you. Yes, uh, I am a former refugee. Really, I'm a former refugee. My journey is starting from Iran, Pakistan, Russia, and Austria, and Ukraine. <laughs> I was as a refugee. Really, I appreciate it for all that country give me safe space and safe life, especially for Americans and Austria. I'm curious, especially why you've been through so many countries. And when you came to the United States, was it all open arms compared to being in some of the other countries? Was it easier? Or is it more difficult? When you originally came here, you said 2007, correct? Yes. How was that experience coming here as a refugee? Really, this was so hard. You know, we cannot describe the refugee. We just need to feel them. Uh, refugees like love. We cannot describe the love, right? 
we cannot describe the refugees too. We cannot describe the hurt. We cannot describe the suffering. People serve feeling that, understand what is this refugee. Janet, to that point, with your work at Lutheran Social Services, Wise talked about the need to really understand and feel these populations. What drove you to work for Lutheran Social Services and and be in this line of work? It can't be the easiest line of work. I mean, it's not simple by any means. It's not simple and it's not easy, but it's definitely the most rewarding thing I've done. I started out postgraduate in Washington, D.C., being involved in a lot of community health organizing. And I was one of the co-founders of the Washington Free Clinic, which is one of the oldest free clinics in the country. The motto at that time was healthcare is a right, not a privilege. And we're still fighting that battle. I then went, went on to nursing school, stayed involved with community health organizing, in the underserved populations, which at that time were pretty much your uninsured people and also refugees. I spent some time in the corporate world. I can tell you right here and now, money is not the answer. I was very unhappy, but um, I found it to be a beneficial experience just to learn the corporate side, see how people think. And then when I moved here, I joined Lutheran Social Services. And as I said, it is definitely the most rewarding job I've ever had. Ada, how about yourself? How did you come into this line of work? Well, of course, you know, given my lived experience, I knew exactly what people went through. So there was, I already had that passion instilled in me, but also seeing the disparities that many refugees face and also the resilience, as I mentioned earlier, in overcoming their hardships, I think it was just overwhelmingly rewarding to see a lot of my refugee brothers and sisters start new lives and be successful. And I think it's just a passion of uplifting them that I have and and ensuring their success. And that really drives me to continue to work harder and harder. And Weiss, yourself, how did you come to work with We Are All America? Yeah, there are many reasons. One of them is my background and tie with the refugee. I become a refugee with my family and uh, lived in due to the Afghanistan long war. I am very familiar with uh, what refugee go through. And I feel that uh, since I was a refugee and I know it is a very hard journey to live in that situation until finding a safe place to live. For example, I was in second country, people know us as refugee, rather that know my name. It really was so hard for me. People call me refugee. And the second reason was compassion and my sense of helping people who are in need. Can I ask you, when you were in Afghanistan or even in your journeys to other countries, what was your profession there? I did different jobs. I worked with We Are All America, electrical building housing. And in Iran, I was a teacher. Yeah, I am older. I did a lot of job because when people entering to new country need job, I did any job people offer me, I did that. I worked with a hard job too in the Russia. Really, it was so hard for me in Russia, as you know, it's so cold. I worked the outside over there. 
for almost one year. That's impressive. Mera, to your point about resilience, I think in the United States, some of us have kind of a linear trajectory of career paths, right? So if we need somebody to teach our youth or to build housing or to do electrical work or to help with a number of other things, we can just come to you, Weiss, right? Of course. Okay. <laughs> wanted to add something to, to what Weiss said. As the person on here who has not experienced being a refugee, I think sometimes Americans pigeonhole refugees and just think that they're all the same that they don't have a whole lot of formal education and not a whole lot of formal training. And one thing that I've discovered over the years of working is that people come to us with all different types of experience. And one of the challenges they face is they were a journalist in their home country, or they were a physician, or they were an electrical engineer. Making that leap to being able to re-enter those professions in the United States is very difficult and is very frustrating when they come here and find out that basically they're being told to take an entry-level position at this time. Where do you think that stems from? Why is there that kind of stereotype in the United States that the refugee is a single population and a single skill set and is qualified solely for entry-level work? I think it probably stems from our white privilege attitude and lack of knowledge. People don't know much about refugees. They don't know what a refugee is. I mean, I've heard people say to me that 9-11 was that they were all refugees, which of course was not true at all. None of they were not refugees at all. So there's a very poor understanding. And I think we see ourselves as involved in American exceptionalism. And how could there be people coming from all these countries that we know very little about, how could they too be educated? How could that be possible? And it's, it's a difficult stereotype to break in the broader community. And if I can just add to what Janet is saying, I think one of the things she mentioned is privilege. I think that's a big one. The other thing is the lack of education. Many people here have not met a former refugee or interacted with them and they haven't heard their stories. And I think a lot of that creates their own stereotypes or misconceptions about who a refugee is. And they have this idea, stereotypical idea. And like my parents were in our former country, they had careers. My mom was a business owner with successful business. My dad worked for a very big mining company and and was an electrician, really successful. So to Janet's point, when they came here, they had to start at working minimum wage at factories where they were exploited because of their lack of language skills and learning the language. And you have to take on that job because you don't have another choice. You have to start in your life and pay rent. And so that's what a lot of refugees face when they come here. And a lot of the misconceptions and stereotypes they face as well. Okay, so put us in your shoes for a moment. A new refugee arrives to the United States and comes to either of your organizations in need of support. What all do you do? Who do you connect them with? What kind of services are you offering them and what kind of needs are you seeing within certain populations right now? There are nine national resettlement organizations. So once a refugee is approved for 
settling in the United States, they are assigned to one of those national organizations. So if they are assigned to our parent organization, which is LIRS, Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services, we are the affiliate here in Arizona, then we assure the case. They let us know. They say, we have a case of a family of six arriving. Can you take this case? Generally, we always do take the cases. Sometimes it has to go through a little bit more approval if there are extraordinary needs. We had a guy who needed a heart transplant and we did take him. He had a successful transplant here in the United States. So we have their arrival date. We have biodata on the family and the family members. So the minute that case is assured, the housing coordinator finds them an apartment. And then they are assigned what's called the reception and placement case manager, who will meet them at the airport, take them to their new home where food has been bought for two weeks and it is always supposed to be culturally appropriate food. Either the case manager or an interpreter is there to speak with them in their language and they get them settled. Now we do get, we get money from the government and per case you get a certain amount of money that covers what the refugees are starting out with and some of our overhead. So for example, that's where the the rent would come from for a while. And then from there, they have an employment specialist who works with them um, on getting their social security, helping them find that first job. And the RMP case manager continues to work on making sure the children are enrolled in school, making sure they have their first screening appointment through the county. There's a health screening that's done and setting them up with their primary care physicians. They have services for up to five years. And in some cases longer, we can usually make that work. And then those case managers, if we were not aware of issues beforehand, those case managers can approach us and say, look, this family arrived here. No, nobody told us that two out of three of their children are deaf. We're going to need extended specialty services. And then, and then we become involved. So that's a kind of a quick overview of how it happens. They don't just walk into the office. Asylum seekers do walk into the office, but that's a whole different issue. So they are assigned through one of the nine agencies. If they have family in certain cities, they can ask to go to those cities. In many cases, they don't. And it's just a matter of where's the best fit. Phoenix is a good fit because at one point we did have low rents. (laughs) Not anymore. We have a strong refugee community. Arizona is a very welcoming state to refugees. And there are employment opportunities. So it's uh, Phoenix is one of the, the top sites that um, we like to see people assigned to. Yeah, Nero, Janet mentioned that Phoenix and Arizona is a very welcoming place for refugees. Do you know roughly how many refugees are in the state of Arizona? Yeah, as Janet mentioned, we're one of the top states to welcome and resettle refugees. The program here actually started in 1980. Right now, the Arizona Refugee Resettlement Program goes through DES, the Department of Economic Security, and we've resettled over 88,000 refugees since 1980 here. And many of the businesses that you see, restaurants, especially in some of the West Phoenix corridors, those are all refugee-owned businesses. So we certainly have a big diversity of different refugee ethnic groups, which is really amazing. I think we touched on this a little bit before, but what do you think the audience or the general public should know about refugee populations that maybe isn't well understood as much as you would like it to be 
Weiss, I'll start with you. Arizona is one top state to resettle refugees. Since late September of 2021, it has received more than 2,080 Afghan nationals. As a former refugee, I am very appreciative of the Arizonans that welcome the refugee and help them with their new life. For example, the past few months, the field-based organization and community organization played a key role in refugee resettlement and services providers and assisting Afghans providing support such as donations, helping them finding housing, navigating the education and health care systems. Also, I want to add that refugee into the employment arena as soon as they arrive and play a role as a member of the community. So is that part of your role within We're All America? I mean, when people are here in the United States, you're helping to find certain resources for them. I mean, your title is Housing and Welcoming Navigator. So what is it like when when you're working with or on behalf of a refugee family or population? How do you welcome them? How do you find them housing? Really, I'm not working like case manager, just searching for resources, housing resources and uh, providing for resettlement agencies and resettlement agent uh, through the resettlement agencies where I help to client. This way I help the refugees. We searching for resource, housing resources and refill to resettlement agencies, resettlement agencies finding house for clients. We also work in so closely with Afghan community in Arizona. Uh, we have here Afghan association in uh, Phoenix and Tucson. We work in so closely with them and we try to building a small leaders group from local Afghans to help uh, them reach out for housing and other needs. To that point, you know, in the last year, there's been a lot of change in Afghanistan, especially due to the United States. So how has that been reflected here in Arizona? Yeah, in Afghanistan, you know, the recently is coming a lot of people from Afghanistan to Arizona. Right now, we have in shortage housing in Arizona and across the country. This affected really a lot about the employment. I would just add that prior to this year and even last year, the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program was in a place where this infrastructure really took a toll because the previous administration's anti-refugee, anti-asylum policies. We went from having over 300 plus offices across the country to a little over 100 local refugee resettlement offices. And so when, when you think about capacity, that was really dwindled down to, to its bare minimum of resources. So then last year in August of 2021, when the, the evacuation happened in Afghanistan and we started receiving families, it was very difficult, I think, and I'm sure Janet can speak on this. Initially, the refugee resettlement agencies had uh, many challenges they faced and barriers because of, of that influx and, and because we were still at the same time rebuilding the U.S resettlement infrastructure from before. And so it's been, I think, amazing to see at the local
local level, the communities come together and the refugee resettlement agencies to help respond, to get people housing, to get people integrated. And I think one thing that I also want to mention is we still cannot forget about all of the Afghan families who were left behind and unfortunately could not get out. And especially now what's happening with young girls, young women who are not able to get the education that they need because of the Taliban and not allowing them to continue their education. So we need to continue to advocate for them and for families to still have an opportunity to resettle. We lost some of our staff due to the previous administration, but I really would credit my agency and my director for managing to hold on to people. And then we were able to quickly respond after the fall of Cabal. We essentially doubled our staff. We were able to go out there. We were able to find Dari and Pashtu speaking case managers because that was crucial. And yes, those people worked so hard. I mean, they were at the airport two, three times a day with maybe overnight notice. There, there was no real organization to this. With our regular refugees, we have plenty of notification. This was, okay, tomorrow there's a family of 10 arriving and all hours of the day and night. And one of the initial struggles, which has been rectified, is with the initial people who arrived, they they did not receive any public benefits whatsoever. So we had women in their third trimester of pregnancy that we wanted to ensure safe delivery, safe baby, and we worked very well. This is true of all the agencies and resettlement agencies in Phoenix. Worked very well with the larger healthcare providers to set up a system where clients were seen before they had Medicaid, which is access here in Arizona, so that their most basic needs were met. And then over time, they were approved for benefits. Here in the U.S., when we think about health, we immediately think about health care. People start talking about oh, you need to make sure you go to your doctor and eat healthy foods and go out and run a mile a day. We are growing our understanding in this country and in Arizona that health is far more than health care. So when you work with or on behalf of refugee populations, how are you thinking about improving health and well-being? How are they thinking about their own health and well-being of their families? Is it similar to the mindset that we have in the States or are there nuances to it? I would say many of the refugee families I work with, including people from my own community from Bosnia, when we think of healthcare, many people think when they come to the United States that they are going to have access to free healthcare or affordable healthcare. Unfortunately, that's not the case. You know, maybe for a short period of time, you will get state benefits while you are eligible for them initially when you arrive, but that's very short-lived. And so that's what I hear a lot from refugee communities that they're taken back that a country such as the United States, so grand, so powerful, does not provide access to free health care or affordable health care to its citizens, its residents. And so I think that's that's a really big one as far as like in our line of work and how we equate health and healthcare. I think for me is access and equity to things like do refugee communities have access to transportation when they arrive? 
they have to get a job. In order to get a job, you have to have transportation. And sure, you can take the bus, but oftentimes that's not reliable if you have children and you need to take them to school and you need to take them to medical appointments. It also means access to housing and affordable housing, not rent that you cannot afford. Access to healthcare or children going to school. And so all these things to me, that's how I look at it. And those are some of the things that we work on is to ensure equity for for these refugee families that are arriving in these newcomers. Weiss or Janet, when you think about health and healthy populations, healthy communities, what comes to mind? Health is a very broad concept that depends on many factors, like having a good job, a health family, good place to live, and good income, and also having access to a healthcare system. A healthcare system is one of this package, I think so. In general, in Afghan people, if they have access to healthcare system, such as doctor, insurance, medicine, they think their uh, health is guaranteed. Also, I want to add, Afghan people do not seek medical attention until they uh, become sick. And mental health is a taboo uh, for many Afghans. This is why providing health literature uh, is very important. It's a challenge that we're wrestling with in the United States for a very, very long time now, is breaking that stigma of mental health. We're starting to do so a little bit for some mental health ailments, but not so much for some of the more severely mentally ill that we're working with and that are in our friends and family groups as well. Janet, when you think of health and healthy communities or the health of those whom you're serving, what comes to mind? Well, I agree with what everybody has said. Generally in the refugee community, they have not experienced the need for preventative care. So that is a difficult concept to get across to people. Basically, it's why should I go to the doctor if I'm not sick? So that's something that we work on educating people with. Nira pointed out that the whole concept of paying for health insurance, our refugees just think we're crazy. They don't, they don't understand it at all. And it's a fear that they have when they do get a full-time job and they are going to no longer be eligible for Medicaid because they also will not be able to afford the private insurance that is offered by their employers. So that puts them back in a position of not being insured. They rely on their community a lot. In our Congolese community, there's a, sen- a strong sense of social integration and friendships and non-clinical interventions. We, we've learned a lot about this with COVID. And here we were as the white Americans saying, this is what you need to do. This is what the CDC is saying. These are the signs and symptoms. Well, yay, now we have a vaccination. And people would say, no, I'm just drinking my green tea. Leave me alone. And we had to adapt to learn about that and include that as a what we call a non-pharmaceutical intervention and also work to educate. But we had to also learn to respect people who are only making $13 or $14 at home. If they've been exposed to a family member, they thought we were crazy when we said they had to quarantine. They were like, I have to go to work. I have to pay the rent. We really learned a lot. I also would agree with everyone about mental health. With the Afghan community, 
and the refugee community. It has to be implemented in non-traditional ways. We are working with an organization right now, Operation Angel Wings. Um, they're based out of Florida and they specifically address trauma with um, the allies that they fought alongside of in Afghanistan. And that's something that our Afghan, for example, helicopter pilots, they're going to listen to that and they're going to talk to that person a lot quicker than they're going to talk to a therapist at a community clinic. So again, it's looking outside the box. What is going to work? Yeah, I think that the mental health, it's to Weiss's point earlier, it's very taboo in many refugee ethnic communities. Seeing a therapist, many think of it as that you think of them that they're crazy, you know, that there's something wrong with them. And also, I think many of us former refugees have experienced and endured such intense trauma that we cannot just talk about it. Period. Like there are things that my father has lived through till this day that he cannot share. And he's gone to therapy for many years. It's just simply so much that so many people have witnessed, endured, that they it's it's very difficult to process. And it takes years to just come to a place where you are okay with the new life that you have. And so I think reliving all of that, even if it's through like a therapist, it, it's just a lot. It's overwhelming for many families, but it is very taboo in many other countries. It's not mental health and seeing behavioral therapies are, is very different here in the United States versus many other countries, especially where refugees that we seek. In the United States writ large, we value that we have a diverse population in terms of race and ethnicity, where people are from, political views, you name it. But we often struggle to look across the aisle or across sectors or to our neighbors to find common ground or at the very least agree to disagree. It seems that your organizations are kind of these central points where you are, by the nature of your organizations, forced to and or have the privilege of working with various communities, various populations who don't all come from the same place, who don't all agree on the same thing, who have different cultural backgrounds. What lessons have you learned that you think could apply to the greater American public in being able to understand and work with various diverse people and populations in a better way. That's the beauty of us, like former refugees and recently arrived refugees, the diversity, the, the rich cultures that we bring, you know, from all over the world, the different languages that we bring, also the contributions to our new communities, whether that's economically, you know, many refugees are business owners, homeowners, they pay taxes, they contribute to their communities. They integrate. And that's just it. I, I, that's part of one of the main reasons I love my line of work is the diversity that I work with. I work with Muslim refugees, Christian refugees, people from so many diverse cultures and places. And I feel like every day I learn something new. 
also um, important to recognize that there that there are differences. And in many cases, it's not something for me to have an opinion about. Our refugees who arrived from the Democratic Republic of Congo are from different tribes and they don't necessarily get along. And I'm really not privy to that. But I have to understand that, you know, that that exists. And even among our staff members, sometimes you just have to agree to disagree because we're all about bringing our services to the family that is arriving. But yeah, I mean, for me, I think it's learning flexibility. People coming from two different tribes in the DRC, I have to accept that they might not get along. They might not want to live next door to each other. And it's not for me to solve. I have to recognize that that's real. Because I have a lot of experience, for me, it's easy to work with anybody and live with anybody that, that the long journey to help uh, learn me that. I wanted to end with just a big picture question. You've got the keys to the kingdom. You have a magic wand. What is the one thing that if you could have any wish granted that you would wish for, for the health and well-being of refugees in the United States? I would say that they have access to basic needs, you know, like healthcare, housing, all these things we talked about, mental health. And also one thing for me is that families are being able to be reunified with their families, their loved ones from back home who who they may have been away from for a long time. That's very important to feel like you're whole again with your family. I would take it down to day-to-day level and frustrations that we see. I would like to see intensive ESL classes. At this point in time, refugees are supposed to find a job within 90 days. So they start by going to their English classes, then they get a job. It takes 12 hours of their day between the job and transportation on the bus. Then they come home and they're exhausted or they have to take care of their family. So they're not able to continue with their ESL classes. Our other pet peeve that we would like to see is we would like to see better access with the entire healthcare system regarding interpretation. We have some providers who do an excellent job. And then a lot of providers, when you say, do you provide interpretation there? They say, sure, Spanish. Well, no, we're not asking about Spanish. We're asking about Swahili. And they're like, no, we don't do that. So that's a real lack of access for our clients. And I I would like to see interpretation just provided in reality. On paper, it is. But in reality, no matter what PCP you're seeing or no matter what hospital you're in or no matter what specialist you're seeing, that would be my my magic wand. All right, Wise, magic wand time. If I have that, I would use that for everyone, not just for refugees, everyone. I would uh, fix a class gap and homelessness, illnessness, and poverty. So we have a podcast episode specific to refugee populations, and a former refugee recommends focusing on the broader population as well. <laughs> <laughs> Jenna Kursava, Nera Sumik, and Weiss Ramsey, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us, Marcus. That's all the time we have for today. We hope this conversation has helped to bring additional perspective to the lives of refugee populations in Arizona, and that it's exhibited the resiliency, the grit, 
and the determination embedded within refugee communities. As always, many thanks to the team at Gordon C. James Public Relations and Rob Trigg at Star Worldwide Networks for production and sound design. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other.